If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 this morning, which uh, continues our study in the book of 1 Peter, a letter that essentially outlines for us Christianity 101, how to live in this world for the glory of God as elect exiles. And that's exactly who Peter is writing to, if you remember. He's writing to believers who's been chosen by God to be recipients of salvation, and yet at the same time they were being cast out and being rejected by the world at large around them. And as we study this book, one of the things I think that is interesting and perhaps connects it a little bit more to uh, what we experience is that these believers' persecution began in a very familiar way, through verbal persecution. In chapter 2, verse 12, Peter tells us that these believers were being spoken against as evil doers. In chapter 3, verse 16, we read that they were being slaughtered and reviled for their good behavior. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that they were being maligned and misspoken of. It didn't matter if they were doing what was right or if They were doing what was wrong. It didn't matter how winsome they were. As followers of Jesus Christ, the result was always the same. They were hated, reviled, mistreated, and looked down upon by the world. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13, because of Christ, they were considered the scum of all the earth and the garbage of all things. Now, if you take your eyes off of what is true regarding about who you are, and if you take your eyes off of what is right in Christ Jesus, that type of mistreatment, disparagement, and settled animosity can really start to get you down, discourage you, and dry up your love and worship for God. And so the very first thing that Peter does as he's writing this letter is an attempt to lift these discouraged believers up to encourage them regarding who they are as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we've seen in previous weeks, he reminds them that though they as believers are those whom the world has rejected, they are also those whom God has chosen and caused to be born again, to be regenerated, to be pushed into a new realm of spiritual life. And we saw last time the breathtaking results of that new birth. We considered them last week in verses 3 through 5. We saw that according to his own great mercy and will, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That he has caused us to be born again to an indescribable inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that he has caused us to be born again to an unlosable salvation. That we are being kept by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of this God has done for us by his great mercy and grace in Christ. If you are someone who is born again this morning, you are a living, breathing, walking miracle of God's omnipotence. And having such a miraculous start to our salvation, you would expect a miraculous continuation of it. And that's exactly what we see in verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is just said in verse 5 that those who have been born again to salvation are being miraculously kept by God's power right now, currently. 
And in verses 6 through 9, Peter begins to describe what that miraculous preservation looks like in everyday life. In other words, how can you tell apart those who have been truly born again from those who have not? How can you tell apart someone who is truly saved and being guarded by God's power through faith from those who are not? At a time when millions of people in America and in our neighborhoods claim to be Christians despite what Jesus warned, that the path is narrow that leads to life and those who find it are few and that many will be deceived in the last days, how can you tell who is a true believer and who is not? And even more importantly, how can you tell if you're a true believer or whether you're not? Well, the answer that God gives here is that true believers... Those who have been born again and are being kept daily by God's power demonstrate not only a miraculous start to their salvation, but also a miraculous continuation of it. True believers demonstrate four miraculous everyday characteristics that are common of every true believer. Peter says here that true believers are first anchored on truth. Anchored on truth. That's in verse 6 in the beginning of verse 7. That is, no matter what they might be going through in their everyday lives, those who have been born again rejoice in and stay grounded on what they know to be true regarding not only themselves, but also the situations that they're going through. True believers do not look upon the world just with eyes that are physical. They look upon the world through eyes of faith and they remain anchored on truth. Second, true believers are anticipating glory. That's in verse 7. That is, they're not living for the praise and adulation that comes from men. They're living for the praise and adulation that one day will come from God. True believers are anticipating with confidence a future glory. Third, true believers are animated by God. That's in verse 8. That is, true believers sometimes will suddenly do remarkable things, especially in the face of hardships, as those in 1 Peter were facing, that can only be described by an inner empowerment of God. They will do things that humanly do not not make sense and can only be explained by the life of God dwelling within them. True believers are animated by God. And then finally, what we're going to see in this passage is that true believers are achieving holiness. That's in verse 9. That is, true believers will demonstrate the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit and then the Holy One that is living within them. While never achieving perfect holiness in this life, those who have been born again will nevertheless be achieving holiness in this life. Though never arriving, they will achieve. In other words, they will be growing in purity, goodness, and righteousness. These are the miraculous, everyday moments of true believers. They are anchored on the truth, they are anticipating glory, they are animated by God, and they are achieving holiness. And I say that they are miraculous experiences because they are accomplished by God. And yet at the same time, they are everyday experiences because they are common to the everyday life of a genuine Christian. And so if you're born again by God's mercy and kept by God's power, you will characteristically be anchored on the truth anticipating glory, animated by God, and achieving holiness. These are the miraculous everyday moments of true believers, and we'll just cover the first today. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting verse 6 on into verse 9. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the Word of God which God's people shed streams of tears over when it is not kept. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning. We thank You for how it contains and declares to us Your truth. Father, we know that we live in a world where Satan prowls about and he spreads his lies And one of the primary ways that he seeks to do that is by giving people false assurance of salvation. And that there are many people that go around in this world today that claim to be Christians, that claim to know you, but do not. How can we know true from false? And indeed, how can we examine our own hearts to see if we have been born again. Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that it shows us what a Christian is. We thank You that what is being described is not exceptional Christianity, but essential Christianity. And help us, Father, to examine ourselves today, to test ourselves, to see if indeed Christ is in us. May you receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise for the work that your Spirit will do through the preaching of your Word at this hour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we begin this section of Scripture, I want you to know that I'm not going to be describing these different truths about believers as things that you should do. I'm going to be describing these truths as things that you should already be doing if you're genuinely born again. Because Christianity is not a works-based religion. It is not based on things we do. Christianity is based on something God does in the hearts of those whom He, by His sovereign mercy and will, chooses to be born again. And so, I'm going to describe to you the miracle that God does in a sinner's heart. And the Word of God will impress it upon you to examine yourself and others in light of what God does in the miracle of salvation. And I need to be clear, none of us will be exemplifying these four aspects of the new birth perfectly all the time in our everyday lives. 
That's why Paul says over in Philippians 2 verse 12 that we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, part of being spiritually alive is growing, right? So while none of us will be exemplifying these aspects of the new birth perfectly, if we're truly born again, if Christ is in us, we will be demonstrating these aspects of the new birth characteristically in our everyday lives. In other words, these four aspects will not be foreign to our experience. They will be part and parcel of our everyday life. And as we're going through this, if you're genuinely born again, you'll be sitting there thinking, yes, I have seen that in my life. Not perfectly, but I have seen it. They will be fair and accurate assessments of us, just as they were of Peter's audience. Peter wasn't writing to super-Christians. He was writing to Christians, those who had been born again. And he describes what those people who are born again look like. So the first miraculous aspect of the new birth that believers experience as part of their everyday life is first being anchored on truth. Believers are marked by a stability in their life, in the midst of trials, a stability that comes through a constant focus they have. So that's what Peter says first. He says the believers are anchored on truth. He says, in this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and we'll stop right there. Before we even get started in this section, I want you to catch the big picture of what Peter's teaching here. In verse 5, Peter has just stated to his audience that they have been given a supernatural faith through their new birth. He says in verse 5 that they are being kept by God's power through faith. Well, here in verse 6, Peter follows up that idea by saying that one of the ways that their supernatural saving faith is being demonstrated is through their focus. In other words, even though their life was up and down and, and going all over the place because of persecution at this time, as believers, they were still focused and anchored on something in the midst of all of their life's unsettledness. They were anchored on the truth. And, that's, and that makes sense because the ecosystem in which faith lives is truth. As Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 teaches, faith is being fully convinced and assured of things that you have not seen and yet that God has clearly revealed. Faith is grounded on the truth. And therefore, true believers will be grounded in the truth as well. Even in the midst of life's trials and hardships, believers will be characterized by a focus on the word of God and on his truth. Specifically, Peter teaches us that in the midst of hardships, true believers will anchor themselves spiritually on two truths. First, the eternal nature of our adoption will occupy our hearts and minds. And second, the true nature of our affliction will be in the forefront of our minds as well. So first, Scripture teaches us that those who have been born again will be focused and anchored on, first, the eternal nature of our adoption. That's at the very beginning of verse 6 where Peter says, "...in this you rejoice." And you have to ask yourself, if you're thinking when you read the Bible, is in what? In what are they rejoicing? And the context points us back to verses 3 through 5, to the blessings of being born again. This is what true believers rejoice in. They rejoice in the living hope of Christ's resurrection. They rejoice in the inheritance that is laid up for them in heaven. They rejoice in the unlosable salvation that they have been birthed into by God's mercy and power. True believers rejoice continually in this. And this word rejoice, by the way, is a very strong word in the Greek. Jesus uses it in Matthew 5, verse 12 in his Beatitudes, where it's translated in some versions as be exceedingly glad. 
So this is what a this is what a little it's an intensified version of the Greek word halomai, which means already to jump and leap and bounce up and down. So picture in your mind, this is what a little kid or a hyperactive squirrel would do if you gave it too much caffeine. Okay? That's this word. That's this word. This is a more intensified version of this word. It means to be exceedingly jubilant, to be super abundantly glad over what God has done for you in Christ. Believer. Jesus has risen from the dead. You have a hope that cannot die. A positive confidence that no matter what you face in this life, the best is still yet to come. You have an indescribably glorious inheritance that can never diminish and never be taken away from you. You can lose so much in this life, you will never lose that. And you have an unlosable salvation that you will never be disqualified from and for which you are being protected by God's power through a supernatural faith. Believer, these truths ought to animate you. They ought to energize you. They ought to cause you to jump and leap and bounce up and down and be exceedingly jubilant over. Because it is in these truths that a true believer rejoices in. It's not in his life circumstances. It's not in his situations. It is on eternal truth. This is what a believer focuses on. A born-again believer focuses on. These are the truths that believers rejoice in. It is from these truths, as Isaiah 12, verse 3 says, that believers with joy draw waters from the well of their salvation. It is from these truths of the living hope, the indescribable inheritance, and then the unlosable salvation that's secured for us in Christ Jesus. So, first question that came to me, and I'm bringing it to you. Believer, what are you looking towards to draw your joy from this morning? What are you looking towards to draw your joy from this morning? Is it your life circumstances or situations? then I have bad news for you. That joy will dry up. That joy will be taken away. But if we as believers focus by faith on the reality of our new birth, then the joy that comes to us then can never be taken away. As Jesus said in John 15 and John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. For You will see me again, and your hearts will then rejoice, and no one will be able to take my joy from you. It really does come down to what you choose to focus on. Just as we learn in Colossians 3, verses 1 through through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. This is what believers do. This is not what believers should do. This is what believers do, characteristically. If you seek after satisfaction and joy on this earth, you will fall into great despair. But if you seek after satisfaction and joy in the promises of God, and in the new birth that He has given you, you will find a wellspring of joy that can never be taken away from you. This, by the way, is exactly the truth that John Bunyan was teaching in his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian and hopeful were thrown into giant despair's dungeon. If you've never read that book, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) There they were locked up for days upon days, filled with fear and discouragement as they looked around them, until suddenly John Bunyan, the author, records this good Christian as one half amazed, suddenly looked around 
down around his neck and broke out in this impassioned speech, What a fool am I thus to lie in this stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty, for I have a key in my bosom called promise, which will I am persuaded open any lock in despair's castle. That's the focus of a true believer. They look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, to the promises. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, we can still get thrown into despair's castle, right? But a true believer, after a while, looks down and says, what am I doing? I have the promises of God given to me. This is characteristic. We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. I have a question for you. Do you have a characteristic of your life that you look to eternal matters? To spiritual truths? Is that the basis of your stability and foundation in life? Because if you're born again, it will be. Not that it should be. It will be. Because this is the first miraculous everyday experience of those who are born again they are anchored on truth they are anchored on truth first and foremost on the eternal nature of their adoption second on the true nature of their affliction the true nature of their affliction this is the end of verse six and the beginning of verse seven peter writes in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. And we'll stop right there because frankly there's enough uh, there when you really pay attention to it. You might not catch this at first, but God packs an entire theology of trials into that short phrase and passage. So much so that frankly if you had nothing else in Scripture written about hardships and trials but you had that verse, I think you would have enough to help you successfully navigate the hardships you go through in life. God packs five essential truths about trials and hardships into this one sentence. Truths that every believer will and should focus on in the midst of hardships, especially Peter's persecuted audience. The first truth about affliction, hardship, trials, and testings that true believers will cling to during hard times is that trials are temporary. Trials are temporary. In other words, they won't last forever. What does Peter say? He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a what? Little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Beloved, trials don't last forever. Isn't that good to know? (laughs) Yes. No matter what difficulty you are facing, the longest you will ever have to face it is in this life only. After that is what? Eternity. Where an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is laid up for you. And when you enter into that, everything you have ever faced in this life will only seem like a slight momentary affliction, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And I'm saying that not because I can say I have gone through everything, and I'm saying that with my authority. I'm saying that because God who sees everything and sees everything you will ever go in through in life says this is true. 
Trials are temporary. And believer, you need to remember that you are in exile here on earth just passing through. The second truth that believers will and should cling to in life is that not only is trials temporary, but trials are necessary. Look at that verse again. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. What's the next two words? If what? What's the word? Kind of wish those two words weren't in there, right? Mm. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why do trials and hardships come to our lives? Because they're necessary. Trials serve a purpose. You say, well, what are those purposes? Because I don't, sure don't see them. And I started studying it, and I realized that would have to be a whole other sermon. <laughs> uh, here's a list that's not original to me. I had it written down in one of my college notebooks of seven biblical purposes that God has in trials that I wrote down for myself, and I pulled out seven years ago when I was going through a trial. Here they are. Trials are first designed by God. Well, they're designed by God first to test our faith. Second, to humble our pride. Test our faith, humble our pride. Third, recall our dependence, our dependence upon God. Fourth, to reestablish our hope. Fifth, to determine where our love lies, to determine our love. Sixth, to expand our ministries. And seventh, to strengthen our obedience. I don't know where I got that list from, but I remember going over that list over and over and over again as I was working through a major heartache in my life. To remember, you know what? I don't know everything, but I do know that Scripture reveals that there are some purposes to the trials that I go through. might not know all of them, but I know that there are some. And it was very strengthening for me because it reminded me that all of life, with all of its trials, always serves a purpose. If it doesn't serve a purpose, then God has lost control in some area of life. And that is not true. God is God. And everything in life serves a purpose. And that's why Peter is going to say later in chapter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So believer, focus on this. God has a purpose in your trial. So trials are temporary. Trials are necessary. Third, trials are painful. Trials are painful. True believers recognize that because that is exactly what God's Word teaches. Faith doesn't ignore that. Faith does not pretend that that's not true. It is true. As a great philosopher once said in that brilliant cultural work, The Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Whoever says otherwise is selling something. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible's not selling anything. It's dealing with reality, and it tells us the truth. Life sometimes hurts, and it hurts badly. Look at what Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Grieved by various trials. Sometimes it's necessary for God to bring us to a point of grief. Trials are painful. In fact, they're designed to be. That's their point. Trials are supposed to grieve us in order that they might purge us of sin and drive us to God. Hebrews 12 teaches it this way. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he receives. Now listen to this. In the moment, all discipline seems, what? Painful rather than pleasant. But later, that painful discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. The Psalms 119.71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? So that I might learn Your law. God's Word speaks the truth to us. Trials are painful, but they are all painful towards the end that they might purge us of sin and push us towards the God that we ought to be walking in closer communion with. Believers, born-again believers, focus on this. They don't look at the pain as the end in and of itself. They look at the result. So trials are temporary. Trials are necessary. Trials are painful. Fourth, Peter tells us that trials are various. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by what? Various trials. If only I could know every trial that I was about to face in life so I could prepare for it in advance. That's not how life works. Trials are various. That word is poikilos. In the Greek, it means many-colored or multifaceted. In other words, trials come in many different types of forms. Have you noticed that? You know, just when you think nothing else could ever possibly go wrong, suddenly something you didn't even think was possible happens. One of my favorite comics, Calvin and Hobbes, there's this one strip, and this is not a theology to practice, but it kind of applies to this. Uh, Calvin says, life is never so bad that it can't get worse. (laughs) That's a very pessimistic way of saying what Scripture is teaching, that trials are various, right? That even though you think, I've seen everything. No, there's still more that you haven't seen, right? That's how life works. But do you know what's encouraging? That even though trials are various, that exact same word various is used over in chapter 4, verse 10, to describe God's grace that is at work in believers. When Peter says there that we as believers are to be good stewards, here it is, of God's varied grace. Isn't that good? I mean, that's powerful. That's thrilling that even though we will face trials of various kinds, God has given us various grace for each one of those trials. God has given us grace for every trial, various grace for various trials. Believers focus on this. Believers focus on this. Yes, this trial is not something I was anticipating. Yes, it is painful. Yes, it is beyond my ability to deal with. Oh, but God giveth more grace. Believers focus on this. They cling to these truths. They don't despair in the midst of trials consistently. Characteristically, what they do is they anchor themselves upon God's truth. They cling to these truths that trials are temporary, trials are necessary, trials are painful, trials are various, and finally, trials are revealing. And this is really at the heart of what Peter is driving at, right? Throughout this entire passage. Peter says to these believers, you're rejoicing in the midst of trials. Why? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You say, well, wait a second. How does Peter know that the faith of these professing Christians is genuine, that it's real? And the answer is because they're rejoicing in the midst of their trials. That's how he knows that it's genuine. And this really blew me away when I came to understand what Peter's saying here. And in fact, it reflects deeply on what Peter's going to say later and how we can actually be a testimony for salvation to the lost in this world. Because this is what sets us apart, frankly, as those who are born again from those who are not. 
is that genuine believers enter into trials and because they are anchored on the truth, they actually rejoice in the midst of their hardships and sufferings. Rejoicing in the midst of trials is the evidence of genuine faith. Wow. That is heavy. That is heavy. Rejoicing in the midst of trials is the evidence of genuine faith. The faith of Peter's audience had been tested through trials and proved genuine. Why? Because even in the midst of their trials, they were still able to rejoice in the truth. Not in their circumstances, but in the truth. That is the evidence of genuine faith. That is the evidence of the new birth. And that is the evidence of supernatural, God-empowered, saving faith. This is the faith that saves you. It is having joy in the midst of trials. The reader of Hebrews demonstrates this joyful faith when the author writes to them in chapter 10, verse 34. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you, listen to this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Wow. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. seems like that should bite deep for us as American Christians because if there's one thing that we love sometimes more than God, it's what? Our property. Just like Peter is saying here, those readers were able to rejoice in the midst of their trials. Why? Because they had genuine faith. Genuine faith. So trials reveal something, do they not? They reveal whether your faith in a given circumstance or situation is genuine or not. If your joy only lasts as long as life is good, then you know that your faith is superficial in its faults. But if your joy endures even when life collapses around you, then you know that your faith is supernatural and true. Which is exactly the testimony of Paul and Silas in Acts 16, wasn't it? Remember that story? Paul and Silas had been stripped, they had been beaten, they had been thrown into prison, and the Philippian jailer was watching over them. And yet, what do Paul and Silas do in the midst of their pain and their hardship and their trial? They pray, and they rejoice, and they sing praises to God throughout the night. Their faith was proved genuine, to such a degree that the very first thing that the Philippian jailer asked them after the earthquake was, what must I do to be saved? He hadn't even given a gospel message at that point. He had just been rejoicing in the midst of his trials. And that Philippian jailer recognized, that man has a spiritual life that I don't possess. There's something different about that man. What must I do to obtain it? He knew that their faith was genuine because they had joy in the midst of their trials, and he wanted that. Job's another example, by the way. He literally lost every earthly possession in a matter of minutes, and what was his response? Job 1.21 says, He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, when you're born again, trials don't steal your joy characteristically what trials do is strengthen your joy. And they reveal to you that you are indeed born again and kept by God's power through faith. See, when I was younger, I used to doubt a lot whether I was truly saved or not. I don't wrestle with that as much anymore. 
You know why? Because I've lived through more now. I've gone through more trials and hardships. And I keep seeing evidence of God holding on to me through a supernatural faith that doesn't belong to me. One of the craziest moments that came to my mind as I was writing this sermon and thinking through it was the moment when I saw that our daughter's heart wasn't beating and the doctor said at that moment, I'm sorry. And you know the first thing I did? is the wildest thing. In the midst of my tears, I jumped out of my seat, I grabbed Char in my arms, and I immediately prayed out in front of the doctor and all those nurses, Lord, you give and take away. We bless your great name. You're a good God in control of all things. Thank you for the time we were able to have with Felicity. Please tell her we love her, and please help us right now. And I remember even thinking in that very moment, where in the world did that just come from? I don't take credit for that at all, because as Scripture says, in me dwelleth no good thing. That was something that was supernatural that arose in me. And you know what it was? I was being kept by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. That was faith. That was faith that rejoices in the midst of trials. Faith that is anchored on the truth. It is supernatural. God-given faith. The only faith there is. And trials reveal that. Trials, they test and they reveal the genuineness of our faith. Not for God's sake. He knows whether your faith is genuine in a certain area or not. It's for our sake so that we would know the genuineness of our faith. So often we say we believe that God is good, that God is in control, that He is all-powerful, that He has my best in mind, and all of these different things. But when it comes to a trial, that faith is put to the test. Do you truly believe what you say you believe? It's for our sake that we would know the genuineness of our faith. Now, sometimes we pass the trial. Sometimes we utterly fail miserably. I wish I could say that I always responded to trials with focused faith and joy. Boy, I wish I could. But I don't. Sadly, that's not true. However, though, that doesn't negate the rule that characteristically those who are born again are anchored on the truth. Whenever you do rejoice in the midst of trials, you are evidencing genuine supernatural saving faith. You are demonstrating the God-given ability to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. You're demonstrating the miracle of being born again. So that's what true believers do, characteristically, miraculously, every day. They look beyond their temporary trials to focus and anchor themselves upon the truth. The truth regarding their eternal adoption and the truth regarding their God-ordained trial. That every hardship we will ever face in this life is temporary, necessary, painful, varied, and revealing. Our adoption is eternal, and our trial is ordained. Believers are anchored on these truths. That's all the time we have for this morning. We'll have to look at the other three miraculous everyday occurrences and experiences of believers next week. But for now, I want to ask you the question. This is important. This is heaven or hell. I'm not going to ask you, did you ever pray a prayer one time in your life? 
I'm not going to ask you whether you believe in God in some generic way. And I'm not even going to ask you whether you can recite to me the truths of the gospel. What I want to ask you this morning is, are you demonstrating the evidence of regeneration, of being born again? Is the description I just gave from God's word regarding the nature of genuine saving faith characteristic of your life? I'm not saying perfectly, but are you characterized by this type of faith that looks beyond your temporary trials and rejoices in eternal truth, or are you someone who is constantly, constantly overcome by trials, having no hope, no joy, no light? Do you have a faith that looks beyond your temporary trials and rejoices in eternal truths, that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit and the new birth, which is joy? Or is your life characterized by despair and discouragement upon which God's promises and the reality of His saving work have absolutely no impact upon you and simply roll off, roll off you like water off a duck's back? Do you have joy in the Lord as your strength? Are you born again? You must be born again. If you this morning recognize I am not evidencing regeneration or eternal life. I am not living a life that is anchored on these truths. I live through the eyes of this world and not through eyes of faith. And I encourage you, as Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, to look to the Son, look to Christ who died on the cross so that you might be born again and see the kingdom of heaven, not always your circumstances of earth. If you have, if you can sit there and say, you know what, not perfectly, but yes, I have seen God at work in my life. I am someone that when trials come, I do turn to the Word of God, and I do find comfort in His promises, and I do find peace in His person, and yes, I can say I find joy in the Lord, and it is my strength through every trial. If you can confess that today, then I would encourage you to rejoice in that. Rejoice in that as a believer. Do not look for your joy in this world. Look for your joy in the Lord and what He has done for you in Christ Jesus. Anchor yourself upon the truths of God for there alone in the person and the promises of God holds the key, the joy that can never be taken away from you. As the hymn writer wrote, and these are hymns we sing but often don't think about, all the way my Savior leads me, Cheers, each winding path I tread gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread, though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be gushing from the rock before me. Lo, a spring of joy I see gushing from the rock before me. Lo, a spring of joy I see. According to His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. Anchored in the truth. This is the miraculous everyday experience of a true believer. And this is the Word of God from 1 Peter 1, 
6 through 7, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until our faith is turned to sight. And to that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the new birth. And I thank you, Father, for how we find our strength and our joy and our confidence and our courage not in what we do, but in what you have done for us. Father, I thank you that though we go through trials that are various, that are painful, we we have been born again and are being kept by your power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. And so, Father, we just pray that that faith that is leading us towards that salvation, that supernatural faith would be demonstrated this week as we go through trials. That the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, would not only result in praise and honor and glory for ourselves, but because we demonstrated faith in this life, looking to things that are to come, it would bring praise and honor and glory to other souls that looked upon us and perceived there is someone who is born again. What must I do to be saved? Give us grace, Father, this week to live a miraculous, everyday Christian life that is grounded, focused, and anchored in the truth of your person and promises for your honor, for your glory, and for the salvation of the lost, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.